Chapter 13 Bhutan was right. Jared's pain went away. Sweetheart, Bhutan said to Zoe, I'd like to introduce you to a friend of mine. This is Jared. Say hello to him, please. Hello, Mr. Jared, said Zoe in a small, uncertain voice. Hi, Jared said, hardly risking saying any more because he felt like his voice could break and shatter. He collected himself. Hello, Zoe. It's good to see you. You don't remember Jared, Zoe, Bhutan said, but he remembers you. He knew you from back when we were on Phoenix. Does he know Mommy? Zoe asked. I believe he did know Mommy, Bhutan said, as well as anyone did. Why is he in that box? Zoe asked. Oh, he's just helping Daddy with a little experiment, that's all, Bhutan said. Can he come over to play when he's done? Zoe said. Mm, we'll see, Bhutan said. Why don't you say goodbye to him for now, honey? He and Daddy have a lot of work to do. Zoe turned her attention back to Jared. Goodbye, Mr. Jared, she said, and walked out of the doorway, presumably back to where she came from. Jared strained to watch her and hear her footfalls. Then Bhutan closed the door. You understand that you are not going to be able to come over and play, Bhutan said. It's just that Zoe gets lonely here. I got the open to put a little receiver satellite in orbit over one of the smaller colonies to pirate their entertainment feeds to keep her amused, so she's not missing out on the joys of Colonial Union educational programming. But there's no one here for her to play with. She has an open nanny, but it mostly makes sure she doesn't fall down any stairs. It's just me and her. Tell me, Jared said. Tell me how she can possibly be alive. The Oban killed everyone at Covel. The Oban saved Zoe, Bhutan said. It was the Array who attacked Covel and Oma, not the Oban. The Array did it to get back at the Colonial Union for their defeat at Coral. They didn't even actually want Oma. They just picked a soft target to attack. The Oban found out about their plans and timed their arrival for just after the first phase of the attack when the Array would still be weak from their fight with the humans. Once they pried the Array off Covel, they went through the station and found the civilians jammed into a meeting room. They were being held there. The Array killed all the military staff and scientists because their bodies are improved too much to make for good eating. But the colonist staff, well, they were just fine. If the Oban hadn't attacked when they did, the Array would have slaughtered and eaten them all. Where are the rest of the civilians? Jared asked. Well, the Oban killed them, of course, Bhutan said. You know the Oban don't usually take prisoners. But they saved Zoe, you said, Jared said. Bhutan smiled. While they were going through the station, the Oban did a tour of the science labs to see if there were any ideas worth stealing he said. They're excellent scientists, but they're not very creative. They can improve on ideas and technology they find from other places, but they're not very good at originating the technology themselves. The science station is one of the main reasons they were interested in Oma at all. They found my work on consciousness, and they were interested. 
They found out I wasn't on the station, but, but Zoe was. So they kept her while they were looking for me. They used her as blackmail, Jared said. No, Bhutan said. More as a goodwill gesture. And I was the one who demanded things from them. They held Zoe, and you demanded things from them, Jared said. That's right, Bhutan said. Like what? Jared asked. Like this war, Bhutan said. Jane Sagan edged closer to the eighth and final gun emplacement. Like the others, it tracked her and then warned her the closer she got to it. As near as she could tell, if she got closer than about three meters, the gun would fire. Sagan picked up a rock and threw it directly at the gun. The rock struck and bounced off harmlessly, the gun's systems tracking but otherwise ignoring the projectile. The gun could differentiate between a rock and a human. That's some fine engineering, Sagan thought, not very charitably. She found a larger rock, stepped up to the edge of the safe zone, and chucked it to the right of the gun. It tracked the rock. Farther to her right, another gun trained on her. The guns shared targeting information. She wasn't going to get past them by distracting one of them. The bowl they were in was shallow enough that Sagan could see over the lip. As far as she could see, there weren't any open soldiers in the area. Either they were hiding, or they were confident the humans weren't going anywhere. Yes! Sagan turned and saw Daniel Harvey coming toward her with something squirmy in his hand. Look who's got dinner, he said. What is that? Sagan asked. Hell if I know, Harvey said. I saw it slithering out of the ground and caught it before it went back in. Put up a fight, though. I had to grab its head to keep it from biting me. I figure we can eat it. By this time, Seaborg had limped over to look at the creature. I'm not eating that, he said. Fine, Harvey said. You starve. The lieutenant and I will eat it. We can't eat it, Sagan said. The animals here aren't compatible with our food needs. You might as well eat rocks. Harvey looked at Sagan as if she had just taken a dump on his head. Fine, he said, and bent down to let the thing go. Wait. Sagan said. I want you to throw that. What? Harvey said. Throw that thing at the gun, Sagan said. I want to see what the guns will do to something living. Well, that's kind of cruel, Harvey said. A minute ago, you were thinking about eating the damn thing, Seaborg said. Now you're worried about cruelty to animals? Shut up, Harvey said. He cocked his arm back to throw the animal. Harvey, Sagan said. Don't throw it directly at the gun, please. Harvey suddenly realized that the trajectory of the projectiles would lead directly back to his body. Sorry, he said. Stupid of me. Throw it up, Sagan said. Way up. Harvey shrugged and launched the thing high into the air in an arc that took the thing away from the three of them. The creature writhed in midair. The gun tracked the creature as far up as it could, roughly fifty degrees up. It rotated and shot the thing apart as soon as it came back into its range, shredding it with a spray of thin needles that expanded on contact with the poor creature's flesh. In less than a second, there was nothing left of the thing but mist and a few chunks falling to the ground. 
Very nice, Harvey said. Now we know the guns really work, and I'm still hungry. That's very interesting, Sagan said. That I'm hungry, Harvey said. No, Harvey, Sagan said, irritated. I don't actually give a damn about your stomach right now. What's interesting is that the guns can only target up to a certain angle. They're ground suppression. So, Harvey said, we're on the ground. Trees, Seaborg said suddenly. Son of a bitch. What are you thinking, Seaborg? Sagan asked. In training, Drak and I won a war game by sneaking up on the opposing side in the trees, he said. They were expecting us to attack from the ground. They never bothered looking up until we got right up to them. Then I almost fell out of the tree and nearly got myself killed, but the idea worked. The three of them turned to look at the trees inside their perimeter. They weren't real trees, but the Aristian equivalent. Large spindly plants that reached meters high into the sky. Tell me we're all having the same bug-shit crazy thought, Harvey said. I'd hate to think it was just me. Come on, Sagan said. Let's see what we can do with this. That's insane, Jared said. The Oban wouldn't start a war just because you asked them to. Really? Bhutan said. A sneer crept onto his face. And you know this from your vast personal knowledge of the Oban? Your years of study on the matter? You wrote your doctoral thesis on the Oban? No species would go to war just because you asked them to, Jared said. The Oban don't do anything for anyone else. And they're not now, Bhutan said. The war is a means to an end. They want what I can offer them. And what is that? Jared asked. I can give them souls, Bhutan said. I don't understand, Jared said. It's because you don't know the Oban, Bhutan said. The Oban are a created race. The Khonsu made them just to see what would happen. But despite rumors to the contrary, the Khonsu aren't perfect. They make mistakes, and they made a huge mistake when they made the Oban. They gave the Oban intelligence, but what they couldn't do, what they didn't have the capability of doing, was to give the Oban consciousness. The Oban are conscious, Jared said. They have a society, they communicate, they remember, they think. So what? Bhutan said. Termites have societies. Every species communicates. You don't have to be intelligent to remember. You have a computer in your head that remembers everything you ever do. And it's fundamentally no more intelligent than a rock. And as for thinking, what about thinking requires you to observe yourself doing it? Not a goddamned thing. You can create an entire star-faring race that has no more self-introspection than a protozoan. And the Oban are the living proof of that. The Oban are aware, collectively, that they exist. But not one of them, individually, has anything that you would recognize as a personality. No ego. No I. That doesn't make any sense, Jared said. Why not? Bhutan said. What are the trappings of self-awareness? And do the Oban have it? The Oban have no art, Dirac. They have no music or literature or visual arts. They comprehend the concept of art intellectually, but they have no way to appreciate it. The only time they communicate is to tell each other factual things. 
where they're going or what's over that hill or how many people they need to kill. They can't lie. They have no moral inhibition against it. Well, they don't actually have any real moral inhibitions against anything. But they can no more formulate a lie than you or I could levitate an object with our mind power. Our brains aren't wired that way. Their brains aren't wired that way. Everybody lies. Everybody who is conscious, who has a self-image to maintain. But they don't. They're perfect. Being ignorant of your own existence is not what I'd call perfect, Jared said. They are perfect, Bhutan insisted. They don't lie. They cooperate perfectly with each other within the structure of their society. Challenges or disagreements are dealt with in a prescribed manner. They don't backstab. They are perfectly moral because their morals are absolute, hard-coded. They have no vanity and no ambition. They don't even have sexual vanity. They're all hermaphrodites and pass their genetic information to each other as casually as you or I would shake hands. And they have no fear. Every creature has fear, Jared said. Even the non-conscious ones, no, Bhutan said. Every creature has a survival instinct. It looks like fear, but it's not the same thing. Fear isn't the desire to avoid death or pain. Fear is rooted in the knowledge that what you recognize as yourself can cease to exist. Fear is existential. The Oban are not existential in the slightest. That's why they don't surrender. It's why they don't take prisoners. It's why the colonial union fears them, you know, because they can't be made afraid. What an advantage that is! It's so much of an advantage that if I'm ever in charge of creating human soldiers again, I'm going to suggest stripping out their consciousness. Jared shuddered. Bhutan noted it. Come now, Dirac, Bhutan said. You can't tell me that awareness has been a happy thing for you. Aware that you've been created for a purpose other than your own existence. Aware of memories of someone else's life. Aware that your purpose is nothing more than to kill the people and things the Colonial Union points you at. You're a gun with an ego. You'd be better off without the ego. Horseshit, Jared said. Bhutan smiled. Well, fair enough, he said. I can't say I'd want to be without self-awareness either. And since you're supposed to be me, I can't say that I'm surprised you feel the same way. If the Oban are perfect, I don't see why they would need you, Jared said. Because they don't see themselves as perfect, of course, Bhutan said. They know they lack consciousness, and while individually it might not matter much to them as a species, it matters a great deal. They saw my work on consciousness, mostly on consciousness transference, but also my early notes on recording and storing consciousness entirely. They desired what they thought I could give them. Greatly. Have you given them consciousness? Jared asked. Not yet, Bhutan said. But I'm getting close. Close enough to make them desire it even more. Desire, Jared repeated. A strong emotion for a species who lacks sentience. Do you know what Oban means? Bhutan asked. What the actual word means in the Oban language, when it's not being used to refer to the Oban as a species. No, Jared said. It means lacking, Bhutan said, and cocked his head.
bemusedly. Isn't that interesting? With most intelligent species, if you look back far enough for the etymological roots of what they call themselves, you'll come up with some variation or another of the people. Because every species starts off on their own little home world, convinced they are the absolute center of the universe. Not the Oban. They knew right from the beginning what they were, and the word they used to describe themselves showed they knew that they were missing something every other intelligent species had. They lacked consciousness. It's just about the only truly descriptive noun they have. Well, that and obener, which means home of those who lack. Everything else is just dry as dust. A wrist means third moon. But oben is remarkable. Imagine if every species named itself after its greatest flaw. We could name our species arrogance. Why would knowing they lack consciousness matter to them? Jared asked. Why did knowing that she couldn't eat from the tree of knowledge matter to Eve? Bhutan said. It shouldn't have mattered, but it did. She was temptable, which, if you believe in an all-powerful God, means God intentionally put temptation into Eve, which seems like a dirty trick, if you ask me. There's no reason the Oban should desire sentience. It'll do them no good. But they want it anyway. I think it's possible that the Kansu, rather than screwing up and creating an intelligence without ego, intentionally created the Oban that way, and then programmed them with the desire for the one thing they could not have. But why? Why do the Kansu do anything? Bhutan said. When you're the most advanced species around, you don't have to explain yourselves to the rock bangers, which would be us. For our purposes, they might as well be gods, and the Oban are the poor, insensate Adams and Eves. So this makes you the snake, Jared said. Bhutan smiled at the backhanded reference. Maybe so, he said. And maybe by giving the Oban what they want, I'll force them out of their egoless paradise. They can deal with that. In the meantime, I'll get what I want from this. I'll get my war, and I'll get the end of the colonial union. The tree the three of them looked at stood about ten meters high, and was about a meter in diameter. The trunk was covered with ridges. In a rainfall, these could funnel water into the inner part of the tree. Every three meters, larger ridges sprouted a circular array of vines and delicate branches, decreasing in circumference as they increased in altitude. Sagan, Seaborg, and Harvey watched as the tree swayed in the breeze. That's a pretty light breeze to make the tree sway this much. Sagan said. Now, the wind's probably faster up there, Harvey said. Not by that much, Sagan said. If at all, it's only ten meters up. Maybe it's hollow, Seaborg said. Like the trees on Phoenix. When Dirac and I were doing our thing, we had to be careful which of the Phoenix trees we walked across. Some of the smaller ones wouldn't have supported our weight. Sagan nodded. She approached the tree and put weight on one of the smaller ridges. It held for a reasonable amount of time before she could snap it off. She looked up at the tree again, thinking. Going for a climb, Lieutenant? Harvey asked. 
Sagan didn't answer. She gripped the ridges on the tree and hoisted herself up, taking care to distribute her weight as evenly as possible so as not to put too much strain on any one ridge. About two-thirds of the way up, with the trunk beginning to taper, she felt the tree begin to bend. Her weight was pulling down the trunk. Three-quarters of the way up, and the tree was significantly bent. Sagan listened for the sounds of the tree snapping or cracking, but heard nothing except the rustle of the tree ridges scraping against each other. These trees were immensely flexible. Sagan suspected that they saw a lot of wind as Arist's global ocean generated immense hurricanes that lashed over the planet's relatively tiny island continents. Harvey, Sagan said, moving slightly back and forth to keep the tree balanced. Tell me if the tree looks like it's going to snap. Oh, the base of the trunk looks fine, Harvey said. Sagan looked over to the nearest gun. How far do you think it is to that gun, she said. Harvey figured out where she was going with that. Not nearly far enough for you to do what you're thinking of doing, Lieutenant. Sagan wasn't so sure about that. Harvey, she said, go get Wigner. What? Harvey said. Bring Wigner here, Sagan said. I want to try something. Harvey gawked in disbelief for a moment and then stomped off to get Wigner. Sagan looked down at Seaborg. How are you holding up? she asked. My leg hurts, Seaborg said. And my head hurts. I keep feeling like I'm missing something. It's the integration, Sagan said. It's hard to focus without it. I'm focusing fine, Seaborg said. It's just that I'm focusing on how much I'm missing. You'll make it, Sagan said. Seaborg grunted. A few minutes later, Harvey appeared with Wigner's body in a fireman's carry. Let me guess, Harvey said. You want me to deliver him to you? Yes, please, Sagan said. Sure, hell, why not, Harvey said. Nothing like climbing a tree while you've got a dead body over your shoulder. You can do it, Seaborg said. As long as people don't distract me, Harvey growled. He shifted Wigner and began to climb, adding his weight and Wigner's to the tree. The tree creaked and dipped considerably, causing Harvey to inch along to keep his balance and to keep from losing Wigner. By the time he got to Sagan, the trunk was bent at nearly a ninety-degree angle. What now? Harvey said. Can you put him between us? Sagan said. Harvey grunted, carefully slid Wigner off his shoulder and positioned his body so it was prone on the tree. He looked up at Sagan. Just for the record, this is a pretty fucked up way for him to go, Harvey said. He's helping us, Sagan said. There are worse things. She carefully swung her leg over the trunk of the tree. Harvey did the same in the other direction. Count of three, Sagan said. And when she reached three, they both jumped out of the tree, five meters to the ground. Relieved of the weight of two humans, the tree snapped back toward perpendicular and then beyond it, flinging Wigner's corpse off the trunk and arcing it toward the guns. It was not an entirely successful launch. Wigner slipped down the trunk just prior to launch, compromising the total energy available and positioning him off-center just before he became airborne.
Wigner's arc dropped him directly in front of the closest gun, which pulverized him instantly as soon as he fell into firing range. He dropped as a pile of meat and entrails. Christ, Seaborg said. Sagan turned to Seaborg. Can you climb with that leg? she asked. I can, Seaborg said. But I'm not in a rush to get all shot up like that. You won't, Sagan said. I'll go. You just saw what happened to Wigner, right? Harvey asked. I saw, Sagan said. He was a corpse, and he had no control over his flight. He also weighs more, and it was you and me in the tree. I'm lighter, I'm alive, and the two of you mass more. I should be able to clear the gun. If you're wrong, you'll be pate, Harvey said. At least it'll be quick, Sagan said. Yes, Harvey said, but messy. Look, you'll have plenty of time to criticize me when I'm dead, Sagan said. For now, I'd just like all of us to get up this tree. A few minutes later, Seaborg and Harvey were on either side of Sagan, who was crouched and balancing on the bent trunk. Any last words? Harvey said. I've always thought you were a real pain in the ass, Harvey, Sagan said. Harvey smiled. I love you too, Lieutenant. He nodded to Seaborg. Now, he said. They dropped. The tree whipped up. Sagan adjusted and fought against the acceleration to keep her position. When the tree reached the apex of its swing, Sagan kicked off, adding her own force to the force of the tree launch. Sagan arced impossibly high, it seemed to her, easily clearing the guns, which tracked her but could not fire. The guns followed her until she was beyond the perimeter and rapidly arcing toward the meadow beyond. She had time to think, this is going to hurt before she balled up and plowed into the ground. Her unitard stiffened, absorbing some of the impact, but Sagan felt at least one rib crack from the hit. The stiffened unitard caused her to roll farther than she would have otherwise. She eventually came to a stop and, lying in the tall grass, tried to remember how to breathe. It took a few more minutes than she expected. In the distance... Sagan heard Harvey and Seaborg calling for her. She also heard a low drone from the other direction, growing higher in pitch the longer she listened. Still lying in the tall grass, she shifted her position and tried to see over it. A pair of oban were coming, riding a small armed craft. They were coming right toward her. The first thing you have to understand is that the Colonial Union is evil. Bhutan said to Jared. Jared's headache had returned with a vengeance, and he longed to see Zoe again. I don't see it, he said. Well, why would you? Bhutan said. You're a couple of years old at most, and all your life has been made up of doing what someone else has told you to do. You've hardly made choices of your own now, have you? I've had this lecture already, Jared said, recalling Kynan. From someone in special forces? Bhutan asked, genuinely surprised. From an array prisoner, Jared said, named Kynan. Says he met you once. Bhutan furrowed his brow. Hmm, the name isn't familiar, he said. But then I've met quite a few array and Enishans recently. They all tend to blur, but it makes sense an array would tell you this. 
They find the whole special forces setup morally appalling. Yes, I know, Jared said. He told me I was a slave. You are a slave, Bhutan said excitedly. Or an indentured servant, at the very least, bound to a term of service over which you have no control. Yes, they make you feel good about it by suggesting you were born specially to save humanity and by chaining you to your platoon mates through integration. But when it comes right down to it, those are just ways they use to control you. You're a year old, maybe two. What do you know about the universe anyway? You know what they've told you. That it's a hostile place and that we are always under attack. But what would you say if I told you that everything the Colonial Union told you was wrong? It's not wrong, Jared said. It is hostile. I've seen enough combat to know that. But all you've seen is combat, Bhutan said. You've never been out where you weren't killing whatever the Colonial Union tells you to. And it's certainly true that the universe is hostile to the Colonial Union. And the reason for that is the Colonial Union is hostile to the universe. In all the time humanity has been out in the universe, we've never not been at war with nearly every other species we've come across. There are a few here or there the Colonial Union deems useful as allies or trade partners, but so few as to have their numbers be insignificant. We know of 603 intelligent species inside the Colonial Union's Skip Horizon, Dirac. Do you know how many the CU classifies as a threat, meaning the CDF is able to preemptively attack at will? 577. When you're actively hostile toward 96% of all the intelligent races you know about, that's not just stupid. It's racial suicide. Other species are at war with each other, Jared said. It's not just the Colonial Union that goes to war. Yes, Bhutan said. Every species has other species it competes with and goes to war against, but other species don't try to fight every other species they come across. The R.A. and the Enishah were longtime enemies before we allied them. And who knows, maybe they will be again. But neither of those species classifies all the other races as a permanent threat. Nobody does that but the Colonial Union. Have you heard of the Conclave, Dirac? No, Jared said. The Conclave is a great meeting between hundreds of species in this part of the galaxy, Bhutan said. It convened more than twenty years ago to try to create a workable framework of government for the entire region. It would help stop the fighting for real estate by apportioning new colonies in a systematic way, rather than having every species run for the prize and try to beat off whoever tries to take it away. It would enforce the system with a multi-species military command that would attack anyone who tried to take a colony by force. Not every species has signed on to the Conclave, but only two species have refused even to send representatives. One is the Khonsu, because why would they? The other is the Colonial Union. You expect me to take your word for that, Jared said. I don't expect anything from you, Bhutan said. You don't know about it. The rank-and-file CDF doesn't know about it. The Colonials certainly don't know about it. The Colonial Union has all the spaceships, skip drones, and communication satellites. 
It handles all the trade and what little diplomacy we engage in on its space stations. The Colonial Union is the bottleneck through which all information flows, and it decides what the colonies learn and what they don't. And not just the colonies. It's Earth, too. Hell, Earth is the worst. Why? Jared asked. Because it's been kept socially retarded for two hundred years, Bhutan said. The Colonial Union farms people there, Dirac. Uses the rich colonies there for its military, uses the poor colonies for its colonial seed stock, and it likes the arrangement so much that the Colonial Union actively suppresses the natural evolution of society there. They don't want it to change. That would mess up their production of soldiers and colonists. So they sealed Earth off from the rest of humanity to keep the people there from knowing just how perfectly they're being held in stasis. Manufactured a disease... They called it the crimp, and told the people on Earth it was an alien infection. Used it as an excuse to quarantine the planet. They let it flare up every generation or two just to maintain the pretense. I've met people from Earth, Jared said, thinking of Lieutenant Cloud. They're not stupid. They would know if they were being held back. Oh, the Colonial Union will allow an innovation or two every couple of years to make them think they're still on a growth curve— but it's never anything useful, Bhutan said. A new computer here, a music player there, an organ transplant technique. They're allowed the occasional land war to keep things interesting. Meanwhile, they have all the same social and political structures they had 200 years earlier, and they think it's because they've reached a point of genuine stability. And they still die of old age at 75. It's ridiculous. The Colonial Union has managed Earth so well it doesn't even know it's being managed. It's in the dark. All the colonies are in the dark. Nobody knows anything. Except you, Jared said. I was building the soldiers, Dirac, Bhutan said. They had to let me know what was going on. I had top-secret clearance right until the moment I shot that clone of mine. That's why I know the Conclave is out there. And that's why I know if the Colonial Union isn't killed, humanity's going to get wiped out. We seem to have held our own up to this point, Jared said. That's because the Colonial Union takes advantage of chaos, Bhutan said. When the Conclave ratifies its agreement, and it will in the next year or two, the Colonial Union won't be able to found colonies anymore. The Conclave's military force will kick them off any planet they try to take. They won't be able to take over anyone's colonies either. We'll be bottled up. And when another race decides to take one of our worlds, who will stop them? The Conclave won't protect races that won't participate. Slowly but surely we'll be whittled back to one world again. If we're left with that. Unless we have a war. Jared said, not hiding his skepticism. That's right, Bhutan said. The problem isn't humanity. It's the Colonial Union. Get rid of the Colonial Union. Replace it with a government that actually helps its people instead of farming them and keeping them ignorant for its own purposes. And join with the Conclave to get a reasonable share of new colonial worlds. With you in charge, I presume, Jared said. 
Until we get things organized, yes, Bhutan said. Minus the worlds that the RA and the Enesha, your allies in this adventure, take for their own, Jared said. The RA and the Enesha weren't going to fight for free, Bhutan said. And the Oban taking Earth, Jared said. That's for me, Bhutan said. Personal request. Must be nice, Jared said. You continue to underestimate how badly the Oban want consciousness, Bhutan said. I liked this better when I thought you were just trying to get revenge for Zoe, Jared said. Bhutan reared back, as if he had been slapped. Then he leaned in close. You know what the thought of losing Zoe did to me, Bhutan hissed. You know it! But let me tell you something that you don't seem to know. After we took back Coral from the Array, the CDF Military Intelligence Office predicted the Array would make a counterattack, enlisted the five most likely targets. Omaha and Couple Station were right at the top of that list. And you know what the CDF did about it? No, Jared said. Not a goddamn thing! Bhutan spat the words. And the reason for that was that the CDF was spread thin in the aftermath of Coral, and some general decided what he really wanted to do was try to grab a colony world from the Rabu. In other words, it was more important to go after some new real estate than to defend what we already had. They knew the attack was coming, and they did nothing. And until the Oban contacted me, all I knew was that the reason my daughter died was because the Colonial Union didn't do what it's supposed to do, keep safe the lives of those in its protection, to keep safe my daughter. Trust me, Dirac, this has everything to do with Zoe. And what if your war doesn't go the way you want it to? Jared asked softly. The Oban are still going to want their consciousness, and they'll have nothing to give you. Bhutan smiled. You're alluding to the fact that we've actually lost the Array and the Anishans as allies, he said. Jared tried to hide his surprise and failed. Yes, of course we know about that, and I have to admit it worried me for a while. But now we have something that I think puts us back on track and will allow the Oban to take on the Colonial Union by itself. I don't imagine you'll tell me what that is, Jared said. I'll be happy to tell you, Bhutan said. It's you. Sagan scrabbled on the ground, looking for something to fight with. Her fingers wrapped around something that seemed solid, and she pulled at it. She came up with a clod of dirt. Ah, fuck it, she thought, and then sprang up and flung it at the hovercraft as it went past. The clod connected with the head of the second open, sitting behind the first. It tilted in surprise and fell off its saddle seat, tumbling to the ground. Sagan bolted from her place in the grass and was on the open in an instant. The dazed creature tried to raise its weapon at Sagan. She stepped to the side, yanked it out of its hand, and clubbed the open with it. The Oban screeched and stayed down. In the distance, the hovercraft was wheeling around and looking to make a run at Sagan. Sagan examined the weapon in her hand, 
trying to see if she could make sense of the thing before the hovercraft came back her way, and decided not to bother. She grabbed the oven, punched it in the neck to keep it subdued, and searched it for an edged weapon. She found something like a combat knife hanging from its waist. Its shape and balance was all wrong for a human hand, but there was nothing she could do about that now. The hovercraft had now turned around completely, and was bearing down on Sagan. She could see the barrel of its gun spinning up to fire. Sagan reached down, and with the knife still in hand, grabbed the fallen oban and with a grunt heaved it into the path of the hovercraft and its gun. The oban danced as the flechettes sliced into it. Sagan, covered by the dancing oban, stepped to the side but as close as she dared to the craft and swung the knife as the oban flashed by. She felt a shocking wrenching of her arm and was spun hard into the ground as the knife connected with the oban's body. She stayed down, dazed and in pain, for several minutes. When she finally got up, she saw the hovercraft idling a hundred meters away. The oban was still sitting on it, its dangling head held onto the neck by a flap of skin. Sagan pushed the oban off the hovercraft and stripped it of its weapons and supplies. She then wiped the oban's blood off the hovercraft as best she could and took a few minutes to learn how the machine worked. Then she turned the thing around and flew it toward the fence. The hovercraft crested the guns easily. Sagan set it down out of their range in front of Harvey and Seaborg. You look terrible, Harvey said. I feel terrible, Sagan said. Now, would you like a ride out of here, or would you like to make some more small talk? Well, that depends, Harvey said. Where are we going? We had a mission, Sagan said. I think we should finish it. Sure, Harvey said. The three of us with no weapons, taking on at least several dozen open soldiers and attacking a science station. Sagan hauled up the open weapon and handed it to Harvey. Now you have a weapon, she said. All you have to do is learn how to use it. Swell, Harvey said, taking the weapon. How long do you think until the open realize one of their hovercraft is missing? Asked Seaborg. No time at all, Sagan said. Come on, it's time to get moving. Oh, looks like your recording is done, Bhutan said to Jared, and turned to his desk display. Jared knew it before Bhutan said it, because the vice-like pinching had stopped mere instants ago. What do you mean that I'm the thing to get you back on track against the Colonial Union? Jared said. I'm not going to help you. Why not? Bhutan said. You're not interested in saving the human race from a slow asphyxiation? Let's just say your presentation does not leave me entirely convinced, Jared said. Bhutan shrugged. So it goes, he said. Naturally, you being me, or some facsimile thereof, I would have hoped you'd come around to my way of thinking. But in the end, no matter how many of my memories or personal tics you may have, you're still someone else, aren't you? Or are for now, anyway. What does that mean? Jared said. I'll get to that, Bhutan said. But let me tell you a story first. It will make some things clear. Many years ago, the Oban and a race called the Ayla got into a go-round over some real estate. 
On the surface, the Ela and the Oban were well-matched militarily, but the Elaite army consisted of clones. This meant they were all susceptible to the same genetic weapon, a virus the Oban designed that would lie dormant for a while, long enough to be transmitted, and then dissolve the flesh of whatever poor Ela it was living in. The Elaite army was wiped out, and then so were the Ela. That's a lovely story. Jared said. Just wait, because it gets better, Bhutan said. Not too long ago, I thought about doing the same sort of thing to the colonial defense forces. But doing that is more complicated than it sounds. For one thing, colonial defense forces' military bodies are almost entirely immune from disease. The smart blood simply won't tolerate pathogens. And, of course, neither the CDF or special forces' bodies are actually cloned bodies— so even if we could infect them, they wouldn't all react in the same way. But then I realized there was one thing in each CTF body that was exactly the same. Something I knew my way around intimately. The brain pal, Jared said. The brain pal, Bhutan said. And for it, I could create a time-release virus of its own. One that would embed itself in the brain pal, replicate every time one CDF member communicated with another, but would stay dormant until a date and time of my choosing. Then it would cause every body system regulated by the brain pal to go haywire, everyone with a brain pal instantly dead, and all the human worlds open for conquest. Quick, easy, painless. But there was a problem. I had no way to get the virus in. My back door was for diagnostics only. I could read out and shut down certain systems, but it wasn't designed to upload code. In order to upload the code, I would need someone to accept it for me and act as a carrier. So the Oban went looking for volunteers. The Special Forces ships, Jared said. We figured the Special Forces would be more vulnerable to their brain pals locking up. All of you have never been without it, whereas regular CDF would still be able to function, and it turned out to be correct. You eventually recovered, but the initial shock gave us lots of time to work with. We brought them here and tried to convince them to be carriers. First we asked, and then we insisted. Not one cracked. That's discipline. Where are they now? Jared asked. They're dead, Bhutan said. The way the Oban insist is pretty forceful. I should have meant that, though. Some of them survived, and I've been using them for consciousness studies. They're alive as much as brains in a jar can be. Jared felt sick. Fuck you, Bhutan, he said. They should have volunteered, Bhutan said. I'm glad they disappointed you, Jared said. I'll be doing the same. I don't think so, Bhutan said. What makes you different, Dirac, is that none of them had my brain and my consciousness already in their heads, and you do. Even with both, I'm not you, Jared said. You said it yourself. I said you're someone else for now, Bhutan said. I don't suppose you know what would happen to you if I transferred the consciousness that's in here, 
Boutin tapped his temple. And put it in your head, do you? Jared remembered his conversation with Kynan and Harry Wilson when they suggested overlaying the recorded Bhutan consciousness upon his own and felt himself go cold. It'll wipe out the consciousness that's already there. Yes, Bhutan said. You'll kill me, Jared said. Well, yes, Bhutan said. But I did just make a recording of your consciousness because I need to fine-tune my own transfer. It's everything you are as of five minutes ago, so you'll only be mostly dead. You son of a bitch, Jared said. And when I've uploaded my consciousness into your body, I'll serve as the carrier for the virus. It won't affect me, of course, but everyone else will get its full strength. Then I'll have your squadmates shot, and then Zoe and I will head back to Colonial Union Space in that capture pod you've so thoughtfully provided. I'll tell them that Charles Boutin is dead, and the Oban will lie low until the BrainPal virus strikes. Then they'll move in and force the Colonial Union to surrender. And just like that, you and I will have saved humanity. Don't put this on me, Jared said. I have nothing to do with this. Don't you, Bhutan said, amused. Listen, Dirac, the Colonial Union is not going to see me as the instrument of its demise. I'll already be dead. They're going to see you and you alone. Oh, you'll be a part of this, my friend. You don't have a choice.